for those who don't know me, I do want to say that I'm a, a, a Rothbardian, a Mazesian, and proud to be an anarcho-capitalist. Um, I, I view the state as a criminal gang, and like Rothbard, I hate the state. Uh, it is good to be here in Texas, and I live here now, I live in Houston, and uh, I'm from Louisiana, uh, but I, I'm glad that I moved here. And uh, uh, what, what I like most about Texas is I think we have the greatest chance of seceding from this empire that we're probably the most important part of, unfortunately. So I would like a governor who would push for that. But let me turn to my topic now. Uh, let me have a raise of hands. How many people here have read Human Action? Okay, okay, that's pretty good. So I'm going to, in my talk, uh, I've, I've given a lot of speeches on intellectual property. Tonight will be a little bit different um, approach um, from some of the other ways I've, I've talked about it in the past. So let me ask a general question. Why are you all here at this great government school? Is it to have fun, right? But it's also to learn, right? That's the basic purpose of education is to learn. Of course, if you realize if I was speaking before LSU, my alma mater, I couldn't make that assumption. But I kid my home state. Thank God for Mississippi, we always say. <laughs> but we learn things all the time, right? Uh, a university is a more formalized way of learning, but learning is very important. This sounds like a trite observation, and we, we make these comments all the time. Education is important. Learning is good. But this leads me to the focus of my talk, which is about learning and the importance of information and knowledge and copying and emulation on the market and in life in general. So let's think about how learning is important and how it's used in everyday life. Ludwig von Mises, famous Austrian economist, the father of the modern Austrian movement, systematized the study of human action and gave it a name, praxeology. This is the, the study of the logic of human action. So what he does is he analyzes action in very simple elementary terms. He breaks it down. So I want you to think about it. If you haven't heard of praxeology, don't be daunted by the expression. The idea is to look at what the components of human action are, what we do every day all the time. Every time a human acts, what is he doing? He looks around the world, he chooses an end or a goal that he wants to achieve, some purpose of his, something he wants to happen, something that would not happen without his active intervention in the world. So he chooses one action over the other, and he chooses his highest valued action, or end by definition. Now how does he achieve the goal that he's chosen? He has to select certain means, means, this is what Mises calls means and, 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 and the Austrians. Things that are physically efficacious, things that let you causally interfere in the world to achieve what you want to achieve. So let's take an example, you're all eating now, so um, let's take a food example. Let's say you're hungry. So you decide, well, I know that I like cake. I know I like chocolate cake. I think, I'll, I think I'll try to acquire a chocolate cake. Now, you can see right off the bat, knowledge has entered the picture, your knowledge of what you like. You've learned this from experience, maybe, but knowledge is already playing a role in your decisions and your action, right? So how do you do this? Well, one, one thing, you might obtain a recipe for cake and get the ingredients and the tools to make the cake. Mixing bowl, eggs, flour, spoon, kitchen, oven. Spend some time, you make a cake. And you make that cake instead of watching television or getting your car washed or changing your clothes or making a vanilla cake. 
right? So this illustrates that human action is the purposeful use of means, the use of means, to achieve a desired end or result, okay? But notice that the means that you employ have to be physical or scarce resources, things that are real things in the world, things that you can affect, like the mixing bowl in the oven. So this is what you employ to achieve your goal. And if you notice, uh, the Austrians, especially Mises, goes into the, the logical structure of human action that we just discussed implies so many things. And for example, it implies opportunity cost. We already talked about how you choose this thing instead of the other things. These, the things that you didn't choose are the cost, the opportunity cost of your action. It presupposes causality. You have, to, you have to believe that there's a way to achieve your result by manipulating the world in accordance with causal laws. It also has the concept of profit and, pro, profit and loss built in, which is not only a monetary concept, but a psychic concept. Not psychic in the Shirley MacLaine sense, but psychic in the psyche sense. For example, if you achieve your end, which is a nice chocolate cake, and if it's as you envisioned it, and if you enjoyed it like you expected that you would, then you've achieved a profit, right? If it turns out to be a, a failure or you don't enjoy it for some reason, then there's a loss. Now, where does this leave the role of learning? Learning is important because it's how we acquire information. And information is important because it gives us knowledge of how the world is. Okay? So the more, that, the more knowledge you have, the wider is your universe of choices. You have more ends to choose from, for example. Let's say one person knows only of the possibility of making a vanilla cake or a chocolate cake. Well, if he learns of a coconut cake, this, this new idea, now he's choosing between three things. So his knowledge of the ends can expand and give him a, a wider array of choices. And importantly, you also have to have knowledge of means, causal laws of the world, okay? Uh, because this informs your choice of means. Once you choose what you want to achieve, you need to know how to achieve it. So you need to basically have what you can call a recipe. And this doesn't only mean for food. This is just a general way to do something by exploiting resources in the world to achieve what you want to achieve. So you know, for example, that if you take an egg and flour and some chocolate and mix them in a certain way and you bake it, then after a while you have something that's edible. So the role of knowledge in action is to guide action, to guide action. It's not the means of action. So for example, you might know of five different ways of getting the cake that you desire. One may be to steal the cake. It's unethical, but it's a possible way. One may be to bake the cake. One may be to purchase the cake. One may be to hire someone to bake the cake for you. Okay? So in other words, the more knowledge you have, the wider the universe of ends and means is that you have to draw on. So this is the reason why learning is good. Um, if you think about all the great creators in the past, Michelangelo, Bach, they drew upon knowledge that they acquired from the culture they were born into. Even the greatest of mentors didn't think of everything on their own. Okay? So now let's think about the role of scarcity in the free market. Given this understanding of what human action is, this very simple structural view of human action, we use knowledge to guide our choices and the use of means to achieve certain ends. Okay, what's the role of external resources in the world? That's external objects, scarce things in the world. The role of these things is to be used by men to achieve their ends. But knowledge guides your actions. It helps you choose what you want to do. Okay? So now think about the purpose of the free market system. 
what is the purpose of it? Or what is its function? What is its result? It's to help us achieve abundance, right? We live in a world of scarcity. We don't live in the Garden of Eden. We live in a world where survival is not, even, not easy. It's, it's difficult. We have to find ways to survive because there's scarcity. There's not bananas hanging from every tree enough for everyone to survive off of. But the free market operates to unleash human creative energy and to allow tremendous productivity. If you think about it, although we have scarcity and there's nothing we can do about this fundamental fact of the universe, the free market helps us in a way fight this or overcome this. Right? But the thing is, the only way you can do this is to have a free market. And a free market has to be built on private property principles. The reason we have to have private property is because these things are scarce. Economists call them rivalrous because you can have rivalry or fighting over these things. So, for example, uh, for a productive use to be made of the spoon in, in, the, in the cake example, someone has to own the spoon. Someone has to be the one person who has the right to control that spoon. Now, how do they know that? Because property rights set up objective borders that tell you who owns things. They're visible and observable. This doesn't mean that there's no crime. This doesn't mean that everyone respects the rights. There can be thieves. But, it, but at least with thieves, we could theoretically deal with them with crime prevention techniques. As, as Hans-Hermann Hoppe says, uh, thieves are just a technical problem. Um, but people that want to live in harmony and use these resources productively have to have a system of property rights to allocate the use of the spoon. Now, sometimes it's said that libertarians believe in property rights and all the other systems are not really strong believers in property rights. This is true in a sense if you mean property rights in a particular way. But if you mean property rights to mean the right to control a scarce resource, which is what property is, its ownership, then every system on the face of the earth believes in property rights, right? Every system on the earth will have a legal rule that says who's the owner of this platform, who's the owner of that factory, who's the owner of your paycheck, right? For example, in the, in the, in the modern welfare state, quasi-socialist state we live in today, uh, the, the ownership rule is that the government owns about half of my paycheck. So it's clear that there's property rights in it. It's just I only have about half and the government has the other half. So in every society, the legal system assigns an owner. Now, what's unique about libertarianism is not that we believe in property rights. Everyone does. It's our particular property rights scheme, which is basically the spinning out of the Lockean idea that the person that owns a given contested resource is the first user of it or someone that he sold or gave the property to. Okay. So the purpose of property rights is to permit us to peacefully, productively, and cooperatively use these things that are unfortunately scarce that cannot be used by more than one person at a time. I don't know if all of you have heard of the Misesian calculation argument, but in the 1920s, Ludwig von Mises uh, published a seminal paper which explained that why socialism cannot work, why economics is literally impossible under socialism, that is, full-fledged socialism. And the reason is because there is no way to compare competing projects unless you can do so in numerical terms. It's a very simple idea, but you can't compare building a bridge to planting an orchard. There's no way to, they're not comparable units. So Mises realized that 
in a free market system with money prices, everything resolves in terms of money. You can compare with money prices. And the problem is, in socialism, you don't have real money prices. You don't have real money prices because there's no private property in the means of production. So this is the basic insight of Mises as to exactly why a private property system permits the free market to be prosperous and to generate and to fight this condition of scarcity. Okay? So the market's producing more things all the time. Now, it doesn't ever eliminate scarcity, but it fights it. If, if we had the government offer our backs, you could probably buy a Mercedes for $500. Right? You could buy a microwave oven for a, a penny. Um, so they wouldn't be infinitely providable, but they would be so plentiful everyone could have what they wanted. Now, what are the key elements of a free market economy that allows this to happen? Well, one is cooperation, right? The free market, by setting up property borders, allows people to cooperate instead of fighting over a resource. It also gives rise to competition. That is, people compete with each other. Um, my friend Jeff Tucker of Mises Institute has a, uh, he, he related to me a, a really good formulation of what competition is that was given to him by Larry Reed, who's now the president of FEE, the Foundation for Economic Education. And Reed's formulation is that competition is the striving for excellence in the service of others. And that's true. That's what it is. You try to constantly improve what you're making to try to please the customer. So this gives rise to a relentless effort on the part of the market, people in the market, to lower cost, to make things more efficiently, to serve customers as best you can because you're in competition. But we've left out one thing. Remember we talked about human action. A key aspect of human action is knowledge. You have to have knowledge to guide your actions. So how does this relate to the market? What's the role of knowledge in human action? It's emulation. On the market, you see someone successful and you emulate them. This is what, how competition arises. You see someone attracting customers, comes up with, let's say some guy invents a slushy stand. Well, and he's getting a lot of customers. Well, you might build your own slushy stand to compete with him. You copied your idea from the, from the guy. So what? Customers are better off. Now the original guy might improve his slushy stand. He might offer more flavors. This relentless striving to please the customer benefits everyone. This is the process of the market. And it presupposes the idea of copying information, learning information, emulating. Competition means you can compete with someone, but you have to respect their rights. Okay? You cannot trespass against them. You can't steal your customer's property, but you can steal their customers because you don't, they don't own their customers. Okay? So let's tie this back to the structure of human action. Remember, we said human action uses means and it's guided by knowledge. So the means of action need to be privately owned only because they're scarce. That's why we have to have property in those things. Now, it seems like scarcity is a bad thing. Can't say scarcity is a bad thing. This is part of the nature of reality. But it's definitely a challenge. We humans have to face to, to, to try to overcome scarcity. Right? So what happens is on the free market, property rights and the free market allows us to, to create wealth. Now I want you to think about this for a second. Create wealth. What does it mean to create wealth? Does it mean to actually create an object out of thin air? No. It means to make things that you own more valuable, right? And that increases wealth. In fact, imagine two people doing a simple exchange. I give you my goat, 
and you give me some eggs from your chickens. Now, was anything physically created? No, there was just an exchange. But as we know from very basic Austrian economics, that one transaction created, uh, increased the sum total of wealth in society. How is this? Because I wouldn't have given you my goat if I didn't want the eggs more. So after the exchange, I'm better off. And the same thing for the other guy. So just by allowing people freedom and respecting property rights, you can increase wealth. But the key thing to recognize is that wealth is not an object. Value is not a substance. Things are valuable because they're in a different shape and they're more valuable to customers, for, for example. So when we talk about creating wealth, what we mean is rearranging things that we own already. Rearranging scarce resources to make them more valuable to customers or to yourself. So yes, you use your creativity. You use labor to do these things. Labor and creativity and creation can be said to create wealth. But that's just another way of saying they're useful in guiding your action to transform things that you own already to make them more valuable. Now why do I, why do I emphasize this? I emphasize this because there is an insidious argument that is commonly used by even libertarians who are proponents of this idea of intellectual property. The argument goes like this. Oh sure, I agree with you that um, uh, if you find something in the state of nature that was never owned, that you're the owner. So homesteading is one source, or finding, finders keepers, right? That's one source of ownership. And sure, I agree that if someone transfers something to you by contract, which can include gifts, by the way, but a contractual, consensual, voluntary transfer, sure, that's another way that you can come to own, own something. That's another way of acquiring property rights and things. So they admit that we're right on two things. You can find it or you can buy it. But they say, well, there's a third way. You can, if you create it, you also own it, right? I mean, it just seems natural. And we're used to thinking of this because what do we say in America? You make money, you know. But all that really means is you, you had a profit from a certain entrepreneurial endeavor. These, these metaphors can mislead us if we're not careful. You don't really make money. No, the Fed makes money, but that's a different story. <laughs> they don't make real money. They make, they make these artificial tickets we have now by printing them. Um, but the, the point is... Then they will say, well, there's three ways to, to, to acquire ownership of things. You can find it, you can buy it, or you can create it. If you create it, you should own it. I mean, it's natural. If there's a thing that someone created and it's got to have an owner, well, I guess it's got to be the creator. He's got the best connection to it. It just makes sense. And then they'll say, well, who created that song? Didn't you create that song? Who created that painting? Didn't you create that painting? So you're the owner of it. See, the problem is that they're wrong. Creation is not a third means of, of acquiring ownership in things. We can see it from our examples we gave already. Creation just means transforming things that you own already. Think about, uh, I've given this example before, uh, think about uh, uh, a man who has a big hunk of marble. Now he owns it because he found it. He didn't create anything. I guess you could say he's creative in finding it, but he's not creative in the modern intellectual property sense. Now his neighbor sneaks over in the middle of the night and carves carves a statue on it. Uh, who owns the statue? Well, under current law, it's, it's indeterminate, but under libertarian law, the original, the original guy owns it. So this example is a, is a clear example that creation by the neighbor is not sufficient um, uh, uh, to uh, uh, give you rights. It's not necessary either because the first guy that found it, he acquired ownership because he found it. So you can see that creation is not necessary or sufficient 
for property rights and things. So this is the, the mistake that's made over and over again uh, by libertarians. Uh, one libertarian philosopher says, well, there's ontologically many types of things out there. Sure, there's tangible things, but there's also poems and movies. So why can't we own those too? Well, why can't there be welfare? If rights are good, why can't there be welfare rights is what I want to say. You know, what, what do modern liberals say? Uh, take your typical uh, uh, airheaded liberal, or do I repeat myself, who, you know, they say, oh, I believe in property rights, but, you know, uh, there's a right to education and a right to food. But, of course, we libertarians already understand that the problem with this idea is that these rights are not free. They come from something else. When you have a set of rights allocated and you start giving someone other rights, they have to chip into the others. They come from something else. If you have the right to education or welfare, someone's got to provide it. They have to provide it out of their property. So this is just a redistribution of property. It's the same thing with intellectual property, which is nothing but a redistribution of, of rights. It's a redistribution of property rights from the original owner of a thing to someone who went down to the government and applied for some kind of monopoly certificate that, that gives them the right to go to government courts to ask the court to point their guns at the original owner and tell them you have to share your property with this guy or you can't use it in this way without this guy's permission. It's a way of basically redistributing property rights. In a world, in a world without IP, uh, <laughs> if there's a copyright in that song, it should be abolished. <laughs> um, No, so, so this, is what prop, this is what the idea does. It's a pernicious idea that leads to the idea that basically redistributes control of owners to other people. Okay? And here's what's perverse about it. We already, already pointed out that in the free market, it's, it's working. It's trying to let humans overcome scarcity. Right? And yet you have people that pretend in the name of the market to favor intellectual property rights. But what's going on here? They're actually imposing an artificial scarcity on things that are non-scarce by their nature. So the free market's trying to overcome the problem of scarcity, and something that's already free and non-scarce, these people say, let's make it artificially scarce just like real things are. Why would we want to do this? Let's imagine we had the ability to uh, change physical laws so that you could e easily duplicate a car just by looking at it. You know, I look at your Rolls Royce and I blink my eyes and I have my own. It didn't take anything from the, the original guy. He can still drive his car around. Well, who would be against that? Well, the UAW would be against it, I guess, right? Um, but normal people wouldn't be against this. This is free wealth. Well, we already have this idealized situation in knowledge. Knowledge is an expanding base of knowledge that we've all benefited from that is growing all the time with every succeeding generation. And the idea of shackling it is, is crazy. Why would the government, why would libertarians support the government imposing restraint on information? Uh, there was one free market economist who actually wrote for one of the free market think tanks that uh, many of you probably read from before. And he explicitly says, uh, patents and copyrights slow down the diffusion of new ideas for a reason, to ensure there will be more new ideas to diffuse. Now, we can, de we can debate whether he's right about this means achieving this end. I think he's, of course, wrong, and obviously wrong. But he's admitting they want to slow down the spread of ideas. They want to make it more difficult to spread ideas. 
There was a recent Salon Magazine article about uh, uh, copyright uh, in China. And the, the magazine author sort of uh, uh, innocently stated, we may have more to gain economically from removing impediments to the widespread, widespread distribution of knowledge than from attempting to restrict them. Yeah, I mean, duh. Now, it should be no surprise that patent and copyright have such perverse effects. If you realize the history of what these statutes are, it, it, it's no surprise at all. Patent originated in the grant of monopoly privileges by monarchs. And the first modern patent statute is called the Statute of Monopoly, 1623, Britain. Uh, a, a patent was given to Sir Francis Drake, a, a notorious pirate or privateer, as he was euphemistically called, in the late 1500s, which authorized him to go around uh, looting Spanish ships and things like this. The origin of patents is in privilege, monopoly, and real piracy. So all these opponents of intellectual property who, uh, sorry, proponents of intellectual property who point their fingers at today's pirates and are against piracy, there is a link between piracy and intellectual property. They go hand in hand. And, censorship, uh, and copyright's origin is literally in censorship. Before the printing press, the government and the church found it pretty easy to, to control the distribution of thought. There were certain scribes, people that would copy these things by hand. So they could, they could stop people from copying what they didn't want copied. Well, the printing press started to uh, upset, the, uh, upset matters. Uh, and so the government established an elaborate system of monopolies and controls over the use of printing presses, resulting in the Statute of Anne in 1710 in England, which was the first modern copyright statute. Actually, part of the reason that some authors in the French Revolution and even in England were in favor of modern copyright laws was they wanted the control back. The government was controlling whether their own works could be print, uh, re reproduced. So it wasn't a desire uh, to uh, get this monopoly from the government to go around suing people to stop them from reading their work. It was a desire just to have the ability to have it reproduced and to copy it. So the entire history of patent and copyright lies in statism, lies in piracy, real piracy, pirates that kill people and break things, not guys that you know, have a banner on their website. Skipping around here, um, since we're running short on time, um, and I want to leave room for some questions too. So let me give an example of, of, of a mousetrap. Uh, let, let's say some guy makes a mousetrap, and or he he gets the idea to improve the standard mousetrap by coating it with, let's say, Teflon. He figures, uh, you know, these rat guts are sticky; they keep sticking to my mousetrap. So he said, I'll coat it with Teflon, and uh, uh, this will make a better mousetrap. So maybe he sells some. So when he sells his mousetrap, you know, a lot of people learn about it. Hey, it's possible to make a mousetrap covered with Teflon. It works even better. So let's say I decide to improve. I have a mousetrap. I have a Teflon coating. You know, I have Teflon and I have a mousetrap, my own property. And I improve my own mousetrap. Now, if the original guy has a patent, he can actually get a court order, an injunction that tells me, you cannot make this mousetrap, even in the privacy of your own home, or you will go to jail. I mean, they can, you know, this is re really the force of the government. 
So this is just an example of how patent rights literally rob people of their property rights. Why did, why did this happen? How did my property get transferred to, to this patentee? Well, ultimately, causally, it was, it was transferred because of a mistake, a mistake in the law, a mistake in people's thinking, a mistake in thinking that ideas are ownable. Ideas are not ownable. Ideas guide action. Means of action are scarce. Property rights are given in means because they're scarce. Ideas are not scarce. We need to cast off the mistakes of the past. The young libertarians, you get this. You're immersed in the internet, digital information, easy access to online books and online information, billions of pages of information available at your fingertips, yeasty productivity, copying, emulating, file sharing, and borrowing. The movie The Social Network depicts Mark Zuckerberg, the creator of Facebook, as being accused of stealing the Winklevoss twins' idea. He was rightly outraged at this suggestion. He says, does a guy who, really, who makes a really good chair owe money to anyone who ever made a chair? And he's right. The very idea is ridiculous. Copying information and ideas is not stealing. Learning is not stealing. Using information is not trespass. I urge you young libertarians to stay on the vanguard of intellectual freedom. Fight the shackles of patent and copyright and keep on learning. Thank you.